0: Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, people, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. So as India's largest information technology firm, Tata Consultancy Services employs more than 450,000 workers globally. You heard me correct, 450,000. It's a significant position from which to facilitate change or lead by example, The responsibility that today's guest, Tata, Chief Responsibility Officer and Global Head of Corporate Social Responsibility, Balaji Ganapathy, takes very seriously. From his mission to advance access, equity, and inclusion in society, Balaji oversees several of the company's programs that aim to support women and other minority groups in the tech industry. His stewardship has resulted in TCS being recognized as America's most community-minded technology company by Civic50, a top 50 company for diversity across sectors by Diversity Inc., and a top employer in North America. Balaji, welcome to Brand Unpurposed.
1: Thank you, Aaron. It's a pleasure to be here. You've had such great luminaries on this talk, and it's very humbling to be here
0: i 'm humbled by t c s and I have to admit i don 't know much about t c s until now, and i 'm sure you 'll help educate me and my listeners other than the fact that i 'm a huge fan of the annual New York City marathon, which didn 't occur this year, of course, but hopefully it'll hopefully occur next year and of course t c s is the lead sponsor of the marathon, so I thank yeah. you for that as well because that's also <laughs> that for me that 's a different level of purpose that is not part of today 's podcast so listen. You've previously said in other interviews that Tata is the world's oldest purpose-driven company. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean when you say that?
1: I do believe that today everybody talks about the shift from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism and the need to have all stakeholders along in the journey of prosperity and growth. But Tata's, you know, in 1868, about 152 years ago, set up this organization with the mission that the community was not another stakeholder, but the very purpose of its existence. So if you look at the history of that group and the kind of businesses that they have started and grown and flourished over the years, a few things shine very clearly. One is that integrating purpose into the core of what you do is a secret sauce for success in the long run and the short run, right? Right. So 152 years of history gives credence to that. The second is that the group and uh, group founders always thought of themselves not as businessmen, but as industrialists. And the difference is that an industrialist builds nations, right? Not businesses alone. So a lot of the businesses that were started by the Tatars were to contribute to society in setting up infrastructure like manufacturing, textiles, hospitality, steel, airlines, automobile. And then about 100 years later, in 1968, TCS was founded with that mission of advancing technology to better humanity. So I think it is poignant to note that today, when every company wants to be a purpose-driven company, I think we need to look back at history to learn from it. And I think Tata's as a group, there are several examples around the world, but very few that have over 100, 150 years of history of having purpose integrated into the core of everything that they do.
0: What was the core business that Tata actually started in 152 years ago?
1: So initially it was a textile mill called the Empress Mills. And very interesting that all that time ago, Jamsetji Tata was a man of the world so he traveled around the world he understood that with the best of machinery and the best of people you can create good products and good solutions so he imported actually some of the best machinery from the UK and brought it to India and then trained workers in India to participate in it and that was the first business and one thing i remember about this story is that even 152 years ago the women that were employed in the impress mills in india he had set up a crutch so that uh, women could go take breaks and take care of their young ones while at work. So the whole notion of uh, what we know as human resources today, starters introduced the nine hour work week. They introduced what is equivalent to the 401k provident funds, so pension funds that people can use. They had a lot of these human resources, practices and policies, even before it was enacted by the world and by the local law they brought into the forefront.
0: And your role at TCS is both human resources, actually, it's kind of a, you're kind of a triple threat, right? So you are human resources, CSR, and also diversity inclusion, right?
1: I've been fortunate to wear all uh, different hats within the company. My background is an entrepreneur. And when I started with TCS about 16, 17 years ago, it was uh, in the human resources function. And then the kind of culture that exists in the company allowed me to take a journey into diversity space, CSR, on the business front as well. And today I'm in a role where I lead the corporate social responsibility function globally. And was it hard did you replace somebody in that role,
0: or yes, did you create um, that role? Oh, the you second okay.
1: person uh, to play this role, but hoping to reimagine it, building on the foundation was of what was set up.
0: I feel like TCS is this like quiet leader when it comes to DNI and purpose, and I know it's very much part of your culture, right? You, as a company, you actually take actions, but you don't necessarily put these huge narratives and tell the world about what you're doing. You just do it because it's part of your core, right?
1: I think that has been the value of the Tata's, the value of TCS. That you know, it's what we call the say do ratio: do more, say less, right? So and let your action speak for itself. So not many people know that we invest over 100 million dollars into community initiatives every year. Not many people know that uh, we have 165,000 women in our workforce. We are one of the largest private sector employers of women, especially in the tech sector. We are probably number one, number two in the world. Not many people know that as of this week, we have the highest valuation. So we are the most valued information technology company in the world with over 144 billion in market cap. So these are lesser known facts, but I think that's the genre of uh, you know the values and the purpose that we stand for. Do more, say less.
0: Yeah, and I'll throw another stat in there for you. It's my understanding you pledged about 200 million dollars to COVID nineteen relief. That's A huge amount of money. I don't
1: ever remember seeing that in a headline anywhere. (laughs) It is. And that is, that again, speaks to the kind of leadership that exists within the group and the company. So Tata Group, Tata Trust, and the group of companies, including TCS, came together and our chairman announced this investment of $200 million. And that was more to look at the need that existed and have the capital available So that as the issues progress, as the pandemic progresses, we are able to draw upon that to whether it is initially to look at increasing awareness about and preventing the disease to then looking at PPE and equipment and other things to prevent the spread. And then now looking at building isolation centers and hospitals and also trying to invent drugs and tests so that we can make it more accessible. It has been a remarkable journey. To be part of it and contribute to it that's the ethos of our leadership and our organization well
0: and you're one of the few companies that did not lay off one person due to covid when the pandemic hit is that because of your values and you didn't want to and or is it because your business is so critical to this new way of working in terms of technology infrastructure
1: i think if you look historically whether it is 2008 or in the last few years when there were cyclical changes in the environment and a lot of organizations, including many of our peer group of companies, adopted a buy versus build model, right? We have always doubled down on our workforce. In fact, upskilling and reskilling of our workforce is something that we've done since the very beginning. And lately in the last five to 10 years, we've invested in a lot more of digital tools and products and platforms, that can help uh, people find their full potential. Our chairman said there are only legacy technology, not legacy people. People can learn, people can rap, people can grow. And that kind of an approach has worked wonders for us. We have one of the highest retention rates in the industry. We have one of the highest engagement in the industry. And our growth, compounded annual growth rate is one of the best. If you look at the past 10 or 20 years, very few can compete with us. So it is not just Yes, the values is where it starts from, but it's good for business too. And what has happened as a result of that is when COVID hit and all of our customers wanted to be adaptable and resilient to the changes that are occurring, TCS was in the forefront to help them in that journey. Of course, we took care of our own employees first, and today more than 95, 97% of our workforce is working remotely, and we were able to do that in a very quick uh, You know, to few weeks time frame. But we then were able to help the most important infrastructure and uh, platforms that we support for customers across pharmaceutical companies, healthcare, government, manufacturing, industries that are seeing an uptick at the same time, also help industries that are seeing recessionary forces or headwinds, help them transform quickly so that they can make use of uh, this time to consolidate. For future growth, so I would say I think it is a very unique story because not only did we not lay off anyone, we had about forty thousand offers out in the market for entry level talent that we hire almost a year in advance, and we made a commitment to honor every one of those offers, and that's happening now. They are coming into the organization in batches. It speaks to the fact that it doesn't have to be either or, right? So you can live your values and you can do well in business as well.
0: So you're onboarding in batches, 40,000 new entry-level employees.
1: That's usually what our run rate is in the past few years. And we're continuing that.
0: That's amazing. So just wearing your HR hat just for a second, because we talk about this quite often, onboarding a new employee virtually in the way that we're speaking right now, when you have 97% of your workforce working outside of the office, How hard is that and what are some of the tricks or tactics that TCS has used to help welcome, upskill, train, and feel like they understand and they're part of this company culture and the mission of the company?
1: I think first and foremost is this understanding that you need to break across silos, across boundaries, and work as one organization, one team. And that's what happened during this time. But the foundation of technology tools and platforms that we had built over the years and the kind of culture that we have is what enabled it to bring it to life. So we have about 4,000 people within our HR organization globally, and we were able to break across silos and help each other during that time. So virtual transitions and virtual onboarding became very seamless because Everybody leaned on each other and uh, was uh, if somebody was in one function versus another, maybe in recruitment versus talent development, talent management or resource management, those boundaries started dissolving during this time. And we said, "Okay, how do we work together as one HR, one team to make this happen, make it succeed for our customers and our employees? The second thing is that I spoke about the investment in technology, but it also required agility to quickly turn around and say that we have these technologies, we have these platforms, but how do we reimagine the experience, right? So in-person experience is very different in terms of touch points and tools and what happens to individual versus what you do online and virtual. So we were able to quickly reimagine that and then apply our knowledge to quickly create tools and frameworks and add on additional applications on top of our platforms while reimagining the processes, right? What happens pre-joining? What happens the week before joining? What happens on day one? How do you continue the engagement? How do you engage the person who's joining? How do you empower the managers? So it is a massive effort that has happened, but we have been able to pull it off. And I think it sets the tone now for how virtual experiences, virtual engagement experiences can happen in this sector, in this industry.
0: Do you envision a world where a large majority of your workforce will forever remain remote or virtual, even let's just say, hopefully, let's just fast forward two years from now when we have this virus under control with some level of greater levels of treatment and vaccines, et cetera, et cetera. I know two years sounds crazy, but I like to manage my own expectations on these things. But what do you think about this process where there's more of a virtual workforce And how much of that will stick post-pandemic when we get back to this new level of normal, whenever that is?
1: I think, see, everybody wants to get back to the normalcy state. But yeah, as I said, it is the next normal or the new normal is going to be different from what it was pre-COVID. We don't believe that we will ever go back to the same way of work and the same way of workspaces that existed six months ago. In fact, we have articulated a new vision that by 2025 which is called 25 by 25 that by 2025 only 25% of our workforce will need to come into work in person and only 25% of the time and in a particular team only 25% of the people will need to actually come into work so what that gives us is a long runway to say that of course in the near term we may see a return to work in phases As the virus gets under more control, and as you said, it could be early next year or mid next year, depending on how the vaccines and the drugs play out. But then beyond that, we are already readying our own systems, our processes, our people to prepare for a future where not everybody will need to come in every day. And we believe that it's not only helpful for the employees and for our customers, it also helps in terms of productivity. Today, it is early to say how to will deal with it in five years' time. But I think the lessons that we are learning today will set the tone for how it will happen. And outside of TCS, I think this will become the norm. There are many places, especially in parts of the world where a lot of time is spent in commute and in lost time that people can gain back to spend with their own families, pursue their own interests. So the whole notion of the work-life integration will change in the future. And people will become more happy because they are able to pursue things beyond what they're doing at work, which at times has been a challenge, especially in an urban environment.
0: Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I think the thing that I continue to struggle with, look, I'm not missing my three hours of commuting a day, trust me. (laughs) Last time I was on an airplane was in February of this year. And I'm someone who is traveling hundreds of thousands of miles a year, right? The one thing I do miss- Yeah, I I can imagine. But the one thing I do miss, this is going to sound totally silly, is just human interaction. I think Mm -hmm. there is a little bit of a malaise and a morale issue over time where people are trying to sort that difference between being at home, being more productive. At the same time, you know, those kind of like flybys or drivebys past someone's office or their cubicle, Mm -hmm. at least in my world, spontaneity oftentimes is a catalyst for creativity, and you still can't get that from the way we're speaking right now. We can see each other and that's lovely, but it's yeah. just different. I think that what you're trying to say is that you, you hopefully can address that through the 25% kind of on-premise.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Culturally, it's
0: hard. You're right. It's hard.
1: <laughs> it is hard. I mean, even for me, after the withdrawal of being in lounges and airports and hotel rooms uh, passed, I think the best indicator of that lack of human interaction are young children. Right, I have a five-year-old and a one-year-old, and when I see my young daughter, the first few months that she was away from her friends at school, you could see that in young children, right? And I think a lot of that, does we try to rationalize and manage emotionally, but it's not easy, right? So after all of that passes, to your point, I think the human interaction will still need to happen, but it doesn't have to come at the cost of having to be at an office 100% of the time. I think certainly flexibility and more remote work and more virtual teams, what it has actually done is democratize access to talent in a much bigger way, right? And I say that just wearing the hat of a purpose leader. If you look at the people who are most impacted by the pandemic, it is minorities, it is women who are dropping out of the workforce. It is people who don't have access to the care economy, whether it is formal or informal and people who are disabled and cannot access their workstations anymore, right? But that's what I see is the opportunity. So the new world of work can become more democratized, and you can give meaningful pathways for those people to enter into the workforce. I know that on the one hand, we would like to have face-to-face interactions. But on the other hand, The positive aspect is that we can give these kind of people more entry into the workforce, especially people who are minorities, people who don't have otherwise opportunities to participate in the new economy, women who are dropping out of the workforce, and people who are having accessibility challenges.
0: You know, I'm glad you mentioned that. And I like your optimism, but you're right when you kind of widen that aperture. I can't remember the stat although it was astonishing, a few weeks ago, there was something about, especially working moms were disproportionately negatively impacted by work from home and COVID, in part because what you said earlier as well, you know, now you have parents who are working from home who are also now teachers and principals Mm -hmm. and educators (laughs) and babysitters. And the younger the child, the harder it is to, you know, kind of corral direct discipline manage, it's just difficult. I never ever said, I thought I would be so happy that I have teenagers, but they are a little (laughs) bit more self-sufficient and driven in a time like this, right? Yeah. So I know that Tata has had a huge focus on supporting women and minority groups in the tech industry, and you've got a bunch of different programs to support them, like Got It or Got IT, uh, Million Women Mentors, Digital Impact Square, Bridge IT, Ignite My Future, Ignite My Future in School. Which of these programs, or are there new programs that you think that you might become more involved in that can also tackle these new challenges that have been brought on by COVID and the disproportionate impact on working moms in particular?
1: So a lot of the programs, the fundamental premise behind these programs is that how do you empower people and communities? Our mission is to connect people to opportunities in the digital economy. So if we see the social inequities today that exist, even pre-COVID, A lot of that is because very few people have access to the kind of prosperity and economic opportunities that a select few have. And especially technology and technology-based innovation is where there is an opportunity to further democratize that, right? And on the flip side of it, you see that in the lack of diversity among a lot of the tech players, even people in other sectors, if you look at their technology teams, it's very uh, homogeneous but if you go behind that and look at the supply side right you look at uh, colleges and universities you look at the k12 system there are systemic challenges that are leading up to this right so we work with uh, several organizations uh, nationally and internationally to address this but if i can talk about a couple of programs that target women and minorities in the us goit which is a flagship program digital innovation program was born about in 2009, so about 11 years ago, because we understood a need exists in our school system, especially in middle school. Women and minorities are dropping off from any STEM disciplines or taking AP courses in computer science. Of course, the access to computer science itself was limited. Now, with uh, new legislation coming in and uh, new standards, national CS standards being adopted, there is more of a recognition that computer science and Computational thinking are important, but it's easier said than done. See, you try to address the the supply side of it right at the point of recruitment, you're not going to solve the problem. You're only going to solve the problem for a few, right? And the supply side, if you look at the university side, is that out of about sixty to 90,000 graduates, uh, computer science graduates coming out of uh, college each year, only 11% are women. And only 3% to 8% uh, in a given year are Hispanics or Black, uh, African-Americans, so from off-color, right? So the numbers are appalling. If you look at uh, university, first year and second year of college, the dropout rates are about 50 to 60% among women and people of minorities who are choosing these disciplines. You go further back into high school, only about 200 250,000 people took the APCS test last year, right? We have 55 million students in the school system. And if you look at uh, high school, even if there are about 10 to 15 million students, this is a drop in the ocean. And so in order to democratize opportunities to the digital economy, we have to look at increasing access and do it in an equitable manner. So GoIT was started with that understanding that if you help students understand how they can not just be consumers of technology, but creators of technology. You put the power of technology in their hands, right? So they identify a community problem. It could be uh, against a SDG goal. It could be something they see in their local community. It could be related to health. It could be related to food security, right. infrastructure, water. It could be any problem that they see in their local community. And they understand how to use design thinking, how to use agile prototyping and use technology tools like app design micro bits and hardware and AI and other tools to create solutions, they are on a path where they can be inventors right So that is the starting point. and uh, against these metrics that I shared in the nation today, I'm very proud to share that goIT is now in over 100 cities in North America. We have engaged and uh, inspired over 30,000 students. And about almost 45% are girls, which is direct opposite to how it is in the school system. And about 70% are from minorities. So why I'm highlighting it is because intentional design of programs to address the needs at an early stage is important from what companies do because the education system can't do on its own. The second program I want to highlight is Ignite My Future in School. You mentioned about women and some of the challenges that they're facing, right? I feel that the educators are the unsung heroes in today's society. Yes, the healthcare workers and the frontline workers are incredible, and it is thanks to them that we are all safe. But if the care economy has to rebound and people who are women who are at work have to go back to work, it is the educators who are shouldering that responsibility for us. But we often look at them as part of the problem, not part of the solution. So in 2017, we started a program called Ignite My Future in School, where we created resources and provided professional development for free for educators to include computational thinking in their courses, in their subjects, every course subject. And there, the premise is that in the 21st century, if human intelligence has to drive artificial intelligence, computational thinking is the foundational skill. You're going to hear this more often in the coming years. It is not a very uh, common trend uh, yet. We are hoping to change that, and we have worked very hard on that. But computational thinking is the basics of abstraction and decomposition and modeling and things that help you see the world in a way where you can translate what you learn to create innovative solutions. And educators don't teach this.
0: Yeah. Can you give me an example of computational thinking. I mean I I get what you're saying in the abstract. But yeah, absolutely. You know, I also understand what digital transformation means, but not specifically always. So
1: (laughs) now any profession that you take, if you take a journalist for example, right? A journalist looks at, you know, identifying new stories. And new stories are pieces of data. And that data has to get validated. So in order for a story to create, you need to have subplots. Right, you need to know what, when, why, where, how, and then construct it. Right, or if you are a scientist and you are trying to find a cure for COVID, you apply some of the basic skills that are similar. Right, you create an algorithm where you say that okay, this combination of proteins can have this sort of impact and can uh, destroy this virus. Right, any walk of life, even if you are at home and you're planning to go on a trip. There are steps that you are taking, right? You are saying that, okay, step one, I have to pack my bags. Step two, I have to, or even before that, buy your tickets, pack your bags, plan your itinerary, fill the fuel. If you're going on a drive, then manage uh, insurance and have other things ready. So you do this in daily life, but we don't label it. And because of that, what happens is a lot of kids and young people who are coming out of the education system, they feel that they don't have these skills that technology is uh, too much for nerds and for geeks and they you know there is this mystification that mystified view that is there so demystifying this is important but more important labeling it especially for educators so that they know they are teaching this and the students know that they are learning it was really important so that's why yeah. it is, it's not yeah. a separate course it is integrated into every course subject so and we are very happy with the progress that we have been able to make Our goal was to reach 20,000 educators and 1 million students across the U.S. And in the three-year time frame, we are very close to that goal. We are just about 900,000 students and accounting and about 176 school districts across the U.S. use these resources today.
0: Yeah, I guess another way, I like the computational thinking and these constructs is so interesting because we kind of live in a nonlinear world. And what you're talking about is creating some... Level of linearity. Obviously, not everything is linear, but we're trying to make sense of all these different forces and counter forces, right? And I guess another way of looking at it is in the tech world, you call it user stories, right? Mm -hmm. So you start in one place and then there are so many different places you can go. It's if then, right? And that is an interesting construct for life. And I also think it sets aside the scary math word, like I love Andrew Young, because he has that math lapel pin. But I think sometimes when people think of technology, they immediately think about math and science. And sure, there's a component to it, but it's even more universal than that, right?
1: Absolutely. That's the essence, right? That the universality of it, and that it is as important as reading, writing, and arithmetic, right? So it doesn't have to be Compartmentalized to one discipline, one specialization. Yes, if you want to pursue computer science and you want to do programming, you want to do higher order of things, you can go that route. But computational thinking is a evergreen skill for anyone in the world. That is the utility of it. And you mentioned
0: earlier in passing artificial intelligence, which I think is very misunderstood, even by people who say they're experts in AI. And there's a difference between, say, artificial intelligence and augmented intelligence. And then there's this intersectionality between that and natural language processing and machine learning. And there's all these buzzwords and now computational thinking and constructs. There's a little bit of a disconnect for me where you know you have a workforce that's 450,000 people globally, and then you have AI. How will AI impact the numbers in that workforce? I mean, in the beginning, it sounds like, sure, it's needed, but Isn't one of the benefits of AI is in training computers to think a little bit more like humans, obviously for good, where you'll actually need fewer humans to do the same tasks that humans had done in the past?
1: That is one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is that AI can take over the mundane, repeatable tasks that humans do so that it can free us up to do higher order things, right? So I believe in that notion. As I said earlier, human intelligence should drive artificial intelligence. Yes, what you hear in the news is more of these, the more popular extremes of, okay, AI is going to take over the world or it has a mind of its own. All of that could be true and become true at one point. But in the everyday applications of machine learning, AI, natural language processing, and the adjacent technologies, the more real use of it is how people train AI to do certain tasks and then oversee a larger set of activities than they were able to do before, right? So it helps actually humans move up the value chain and you become more valuable because a machine or a bot is doing the lower order tasks. So that is the path that we have taken. It puts control in our hands. So you asked about our workforce. We knew about 10 years ago that these are the technologies that are going to become popular and prevalent so we have trained uh, employees in these technologies we have uh, some of the largest groups of engineers in the world who are trained on iot and blockchain and ai and uh, data analytics and big data and all of the different technologies that have the ability to really create meaningful innovation but our view is that it is not it is not about reducing number of people doing the tasks but to increase the level of work that they are doing so that they can do higher-order work.
0: Yeah. No, I, I buy that. I do. It's kind of interesting to me because in the same way that the idea of purpose is not new, especially for a 152-year-old purpose-driven company like TCS, the idea behind AI is not new either. It's been around a very long time. It's just now finally finding its footing, probably out of necessity, post-COVID, et cetera. But I don't know if you've read it yet, but I'd like to plug it almost every podcast, but I read this amazing, this incredibly fascinating book called If Then by Jill Lepore. And obviously, if then stands for the famous coding, if this, then that. And she talks about this, the founding of the first, what they call the people machine in 1960, late fifties called Simulmatics Corporation. And what they were doing is they were by definition using AI to help Actually, presidential candidates determine their platforms and win elections. And it's often, it's been said and contested that JFK won the 1960 election because of this supercomputer. And then ad agencies started using it, right? So, and now you have, fast forward 60 years later, you have The Economist that, you know, they're taking, they're ingesting all sorts of structured and unstructured data and polling data. And now they're trying to predetermine the election that's just a few weeks away from us. And by the time we uh, publish this, we will know who our next president is in the United States. But I guess it's a long way of me saying that, you know, AI has been around for many, many years. Like a lot of things, sometimes it just takes some time and the right moment, the right economic cycle and or pandemic to bring it to the fore. And I like the way you parse it in that it can help us do those ordinary, mundane, banal, things that have to be done so we can free us up to do these higher value things. I think that's very well said.
1: Yeah. And see, it goes with my notion that purpose is the new tech. Okay. I believe that in the last 10 years, what we have seen is the democratization of digital technologies, where technologies have proliferated. And at the same time, the ease of adoption and the cost of adoption has gone down dramatically. So that is the cycle that we rode in the last 10 years, and it is still going on, right? So that is helpful in bringing technologies like AI, IoT, blockchain to everyday use, right? But purpose should be the driver for where these technologies are applied. And I'm really glad that we are in an era, whether it is pre-COVID and now further, I think, amplified by COVID, Companies are starting to understand that they need to reinvent themselves to be purpose driven, not just for uh, shareholder interests but for societal interests. because the needs that are going to exist, I think Bill Gates said it best in the goalkeepers report that the 25 weeks of COVID has set us back by 25 years. We have another 10 years to go for the UN Sustainable Development Goals to be achieved. And that seems like a distant dream. But the optimistic side of it is that uh, now before has the opportunity to bring in industries across all sectors. Like recessions used to hit one industry or the other or one market or the other. And in an increasingly global world, it had an impact on many markets. But the pandemic based recession is one where it has hit everybody equally, right? So when we rebuild our economies, our society, our ways of work, our workforces, and what we do for the community, There is this opportunity to use purpose as that driver. Digital cannot do anything by itself. Purpose has to define what digital will do, and people will define how digital is used to serve the purpose. So I'm very upbeat on this, and I do believe that purpose is the new tech, and it is going to give us an opportunity for companies to be a larger force for good in society.
0: Yeah, and while the pandemic has definitely hit, it didn't discriminate in that it's hit everyone equally. At the same time, it's also given surface and given voice and surfaced the great inequities and inequalities of certain segments of the population. Those who are either food, housing, education, insecure, social justice, minorities, people of color, the black community, it's given rise to their voice and I think a greater understanding that hopefully will stay with us, and it's not just a passing moment, but it's kind of part of our core. And I think that's what you mean when you say that purpose has never been more important now than ever before in our modern history. I really appreciate you spending time with us on the show. Everything that you do, I think it's fascinating to learn more about Tata, and I'm looking forward to also follow your journey personally, but also the company's journey. And the only thing I'd say is I don't need you to be boastful about it. But um, I do think that sometimes as a communicator myself, at least sharing these narratives is important because this is a narrative and this is a story that we actually want others to imitate and follow, to emulate, right? This is not just a template, it's a vision. And I know that it's been for almost, you know, for let's say a century and a half, but I think there's no more critical time than now for companies to show others how to do it right. And I feel like you guys have done that. So I really appreciate everything you do and for the generosity of your time and being on the show today. And I wish you and your family and 450,000 TCS employees globally the best of health going forward through uh, these very uncertain times.
1: Thank you so much, Aaron. It's been an absolute pleasure. What you do is a very important role in uh society i think these voices and these examples and these best practices that we get to learn will stay with us and help us improve our own uh, uh, way of doing things so it's been absolute pleasure talking to you i hope to listen in on uh, your future podcasts as well
0: and read if then by jill Lapore. that's my plug so good on my list (laughs) all right thank
1: you thank you so much this has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quitkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of entrepreneurs and senior leaders who make it their brand's mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing team, including the voice you never hear, producer extraordinaire, Lindsay Hand, and the always on point associate producer, Katrina Walkley, who touches every aspect of this podcast. Learn more about our show at brandonpurpose.com. Follow our Instagram at Podcast. And learn more about our host at AaronQuicken.com.